0: We'll hear argument first this morning in Case 08586, Jones versus Harris Associates. Mr. Frederick.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In 1970, Congress amended the Investment Company Act to provide a cause of action when an investment advisor breaches its fiduciary duty with respect to compensation. The Seventh Circuit upheld summary judgment for respondent under a legal standard for fiduciary duty, that respondent here no longer defends. For three reasons, the Seventh Circuit's judgment should be reversed. First, under the Court's long-standing precedent, in this context, a fiduciary duty requires a fair fee achieved through full disclosure and good-faith negotiation. Second, the best gauge of a fair fee is what the investment advisor charges at arm's length, in other transactions for similar services. And third, applying that standard here, Harris charged twice as much in percentage terms for providing virtually identical advisory services in arms-length transactions with institutional investors. With respect to the first point, the standard for fiduciary duty has been clear from this Court's cases at least since Pepper versus Litton in which the Court said that a fair result in the circumstances, a fair fee, was an important component of a fiduciary duty. Congress was aware of that standard when it enacted the 1970 Amendments to the Investment (coughs) Company Act. The SEC brought the case to Congress's attention, and that standard, we submit, is one that Congress intended to incorporate applying that standard where Pepper said that the best gauge of a fair fee is what the person, the fiduciary, charges in arm's length transactions. Applied here, the best way to understand how that fiduciary duty is being breached in this context is what Harris is charging for same or similar services at arm's length to institutional investor Is, is Harris had-
2: a fiduciary in the same sense as a corporate officer and a corporate director? It, it, it does his fiduciary duty differ? Is it higher or lower? Same with a guardian, same with a trustee. I mean, the word fiduciary, does fiduciary imply different standards depending on what kind of fiduciary you are? The basic concept,
1: Justice Kennedy, is the same there are two components where there must be full disclosure of information and a fair result, and that fair result translates in different contexts in different ways. Here, because the statutory references to fiduciary duty with respect to compensation, one focuses on the fairness of the fee charged. But as Professor Dumont points out in her amicus brief, the idea of a fiduciary duty is one that is well known in various circumstances of the law and is applied here The concept goes to the fairness of the fee. Would the test for
2: compensation in this case be the same as any director, any officer of a corporation?
1: The difference here, Justice Kennedy, is that in those circumstances, the indicia of an arm's length transaction may be achieved. The directors can fire the head of a company, they can call for changes. Here, the investment advisor has appointed the members of the board, as this court said in the daily income fund case. The earmarks of 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 an arm's-length transaction are absent precisely
2: because — I just want to know, is the fiduciary duties uh, the same? Is the fiduciary standard the same, without getting into how it's applied? Is the fiduciary standard the same for Jones, for a guardian, for a trustee, for a corporate uh, officer or corporate director? All always the same?
1: Yes. The concept is fair result through full information and good faith negotiation.
3: And for lawyers, for lawyers, lawyers have a fiduciary obligation to their clients, right? That is true. So courts should review uh, lawyers' fees for, on the basis of whether it's a fair result.
1: That is how courts do it every day in this country, Justice Scalia, when they are asked to make fee applications for reasonableness.
0: Well, but this is different. I mean, this is part of an expense uh, uh, of a fund. They don't get fees, but but uh, they get they have to pay for the lawyers just like they have to pay for management advice. So why wouldn't you review the lawyers' fees to make sure they're fair?
1: The the lawyers' fees in which context, Mr. Chief Justice? I'm not sure I understand the question. Counsel for the fund. Counsel for the fund is that is actually not at issue here, but the issue of what constitutes reasonable expenses may arise in various circumstances. The statute. Prohibits fees that are unreasonable in, in terms of their unfairness to the fund. The concept here is that the board cannot fire the investment advisor. So, in evaluating the fairness of the fee the advisor is charging the fund, the normal indicia of an arm's length transaction is absent. Um, and that is the key principle here because this advisor is using the same manager to provide the same research analytics. From the same research group, from the same meetings, buying the same stocks and simply allocating them to different accounts and charging those to whom it owes a fiduciary duty twice what it is getting at arms. But 100. there was
4: in this record was there not a submission by the advisor comparing what mutual funds this fund was charged, what institutional funds were charged, but explaining the differential in terms of the services provided, that more services were provided to the fund and less services were provided to the institutional investors. And Justice Ginsburg, that is where there is a disputed
1: issue of fact for which summary judgment is not appropriate because the plaintiff submitted evidence that, in fact, the services provided to the institutional investors were greater, even though they were being charged. A lower amount of money. Who
4: would have the burden? You said that that's an issue that has not been decided. It's a disputed issue of fact, appropriate for remand. Who would you you have the burden if they came forward and said, "Look, this is what our situation is. These are the services." Would you have the burden to show that, um, in fact, they were comparable? And the differences did not warrant the differences in the fee? Yes. You would have the burden.
1: We have the burden.
4: And that's
3: different from normal trust law, isn't it?
1: It is. Normally,
3: uh, where, where, where you're a fiduciary, it's up to you to prove that it was reasonable. That's true. So Congress evidently did not mean ordinary trust law to apply in this context.
1: We disagree with that last part, Justice Scalia. We agree that Congress did make modifications to the way a cause of action ordinarily would have been brought at common law for breach of fiduciary duty in several respects, including imposing the burden of proof on the investor. Where we disagree is that when they used the phrase fiduciary duty, they intended to mean something less than what fiduciary duty had meant at common law. What
0: if you're having the courts decide, review what is a fair fee — uh, what if the advisor uh, had um, given such good advice that the fund beat the industry average for his category of fund by, uh, you know, 5 percent over the last five years? Does he get double the normal compensation of uh, the average uh, fees? Does he get triple more? How is a court supposed to decide that?
1: Well, there's an issue of fact as to how relevant performance is. They didn't give the money back when their performance lagged behind the market, Mr. Chief Justice, in this case. And so the question of whether or not a performance metric is relevant. Is certainly a factor that will be entitled to well, less. Surely money. you
0: think it is. When you say they don't give the money back, you're not suggesting that the amount of the fees should be the same regardless of whether they outperform by 10% or not.
1: My point, Mr. Chief Justice, is that when they charge the same amount buying the same stocks to institutional investors and achieve the same performance, there's no reason why the mutual fund should be charged twice as much.
0: Well, but so- there's different parameters, right, in the sense that you're trying company is trying to attract investors to the mutual fund. If you're advising a pension fund, it's not the case that they're trying to uh, attract pensioners who have other choices.
1: But the investor doesn't gain because of the marketing skill of the advisor. Simply having a larger asset pool, which increases the fee that the advisor can charge, doesn't inure to the individual benefit of the investor. And the point of this statute was to provide protection against investors so that when the advisor a charged excessive fees, that excess would be returned to the fund for the program. You, you
2: said that Congress used fiduciary in a special sense. Uh, then, then I have to conclude that your earlier answer is, is, is confusing for me because I thought you were going to tell us that this investment advisor has the same fiduciary standard that officers and and directors of corporations have. Then you say that Congress used it in a special sense, so that doesn't quite square. Well,
1: Justice Kennedy, let me just add the extra words of the statute, because what Congress said was a fiduciary duty with respect to compensation. And so when I say special sense, I mean that Congress used additional words to elaborate on the circumstance in which the fiduciary duty would be examined. Here – what is happening is that at arm's length transactions for the same services, the same manager is going out and touting its services to the institutional investor, but simply charging them half as much money for providing the same portfolio management.
0: Do do technological changes make a difference um, in terms of disclosures required? These days, all you have to do is push a button, and you find out exactly what the uh, uh, management fees are. I mean, you just look it up on Morningstar, and it's right there. And you can make, as an investor, you can make whatever determination you'd like, including to take your money out.
1: The fact that an investor may know going in what the fee is does not address the problem Congress was intending to address, which is that as larger and larger sums of assets were accreted to the mutual fund, the investor was not obtaining the benefits of economies of scale. And that's the central problem.
0: So he can look at the, uh, you know, as the fund grows bigger and he doesn't get those benefits, he can go look at another fund. It, It takes... 30 seconds.
1: And that, again, doesn't address the problem Congress was trying to get at, which is to protect the company, not the individual investor. The individual investor might lessen the damages that investor suffers, but the fund, the people remaining, continue to pay excessive fees. But
3: he, he, he protects the company, ultimately, because when investors leave, the company that is charging excessive fees to go to other companies the, the company that they're leaving sees that something's wrong and, and has to lower it, it, its compensation to, to its, uh, its, its, its advisor. Why, why doesn't that affect the company at issue?
1: A large number of assets under management and mutual funds, something like 26 to 35 percent according to uh, the materials that are in the record, are from 401K plans where the investor is essentially locked into the fund that his or her company chooses to make <clears throat> that investment. And even as to investors who are not locked in, there are significant tax consequences where, over time, an investor might be in the Oakmark Fund and have to suffer Large tax consequences in order to get the benefit of a statute.
0: Companies companies change who they invest with under the 401ks all the time. If the employees aren't happy with the return they're getting because the company has limited their choices, then change. It happens all the time.
1: And Mr. Chief Justice, as the court recognized in the Daily Income Fund case, this is a unique cause of action in which Congress was intending to protect the entire corpus of the investors in the fund because precisely just a little while
0: ago or told somebody Congress wasn't interested in protecting investors. They were interested in protecting the company.
1: The company is comprised of the investors, Mr. Chief Justice. What the right of action does not do is to provide individual damages to the investor who brings the suit. The recovery endures to the entire benefit of all of the investors who COUNCIL,
5: Counsel can I unpackage your argument a little bit. Because using the word fair fee, in my mind, is meaningless, because it has to be fair in relationship to something. And so what is your definition of what that something is that it's fair to and or unfair against? And start from there, because I understood the Seventh Circuit to be saying, look, a fair fee is paying market value. If one takes a sort of reading, it's whatever negotiation goes on between the two, as long as there been full disclosure as required, that's the market. So that's fair. You're saying it's something else. What's that something else?
1: Well, what the Court said in Pepper is that fair is what is uh, reflective of what an arm's length agreement would produce. All right. Reduce. So
5: you start there. Yes. All right. So Let's stop confusing the, the articulation of the standard, which is that's fair. What would an arm's length transaction produce? And let's go to what seems to be part of your argument and sort of the, what everyone's skirting around, which is what's the proof that a particular transaction is not arm's length? The Seventh Circuit appeared to be saying it's arms length when the parties have done all of the disclosure that is required because then the buyer can decide whether they want to pay that fee or not and once they choose to it's a fair price it's an arms length trans- transaction you're saying not and that's what that's where I'm trying to get to the nub of why not why is because the
1: directors can't fire and walk away from the advisor. In any arm's length transaction, if I sell you a car and you don't like the price, that's, you can that's, walk away. That,
5: now that's begging the question because Congress hasn't said a reasonable fee, it did say. Fiduciary duty, but it didn't. There is a subtle but very important difference between reasonable and, and, and a reasonable fee and a fiduciary duty with respect to fees. True. There are two components.
1: Was there full information and in good faith negotiating? And was the result fair? In Pepper, the court said if the result is not fair, there can be a breach if I do share you,
5: I'm still begging the question, fair against what? Fair
1: against what the advisor actually charged for same or similar services to an outsider to who had the right to walk away. Mr.
3: Frederick, I, I don't understand your, your, your statement that they, they can't fire the investment advisor. They, maybe they can't fire him, but they can insist that he accept a, a lower fee, right? And in fact, Surely they can do that, can't they? They in the can they insist that he accept a lower
1: fee? It, right? Can they do that? In practical terms, no. Why? because the advisor picks the Board of Directors. Oh, no,
3: that's something different. I, I, let, let, well, let's it, assume that you have a disinterested Board of Directors, which is what the statute requires. You tell me, even though they're disinterested, they can't fire, fire the advisor. It seems to me, while they can't fire him, they can say, we're going to cut your fee in half, whereupon they don't have to fire him. He will pack up and leave, and they will get a new advisor. Doesn't that work?
1: There is actually no evidence in any record I'm aware of where that's actually happened. The directors have no leverage and that's the problem. The court this court recognized in the Daily Income Fund case, if I could reserve the balance of my time, please.
0: Thank you, counsel. <coughs> <coughs> Mr. Gannon.
6: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The fiduciary duty imposed by Section 36B prohibits an investment advisor's fees from being outside the range that arm's length bargaining would produce. The Courts below erred by failing to consider evidence about what the investment advisor in this case charges its unaffiliated clients when it provides services that petitioners claim are, in fact, comparable to the services at issue here.
2: Do you think Congress used the term fiduciary in a very special sense here? And I'll just tell you the problem I'm having with the case. Uh, if, if I look at a standard that fees must be reasonable, and I compare that with what a fiduciary would do, I thought a fiduciary has the highest possible duty. But apparently the submission is a fiduciary has a lower duty, a lesser duty, than to charge a reasonable fee. I, I just find that quite – a puzzling use of the word fiduciary. Now, if Congress uses it as a term of art or in some special sense, fine. Well, we do but think It seems to me an odd use of the term fiduciary. I, I don't know why Congress didn't use some other word.
6: Well, uh, we, we do think that the term fiduciary duty is here used to counterbalance the lack of arm's length bargaining that exists between the Board of Directors and the investment advisor, and we do think that it drew upon the established term of art in Pepper against Lytton, the case that uh, Counsel for Petitioners was already referring to. That's a case that actually involved corporate directors, um, and there the same test, the same ultimate standard was was stated, which is whether the the bargain carries the the earmarks of an arm's length bargain and whether it's inherently fair. And so we do think that in the development of the legislation in 1969, the memorandum that the SEC submitted to Congress in 1969 explained that the the shift from reasonableness to fiduciary duty largely achieved some procedural objectives of shifting the focus from the Board of Directors to the investment advisor, and the the text of the statute specifically makes it a fiduciary duty with respect to the receipt of compensation. We think one salutary effect of that was to to, to make it clear that the Court's burden here, the, the Court's duty here, wasn't um, just to establish what the single most reasonable fee would be, but uh, harking back to the, uh, the Pepper against Litton test, whether the bargain fell within the range of what arm's length bargaining otherwise would have achieved. Counsel, and so-
0: if we're going to have regulation of what fees can be charged, you, you cite in your brief the various regulations the SEC has issued. It it makes a lot more sense to have the SEC regulate rates than to have courts do it, doesn't it?
6: Well, in the abstract, it might make more sense, Mr. Chief Justice. I think the choice that Congress made here was to counterbalance the — Well,
0: you're you're not suggesting the SEC wouldn't have authority to do that, are you?
6: Well, uh, even under this statute, the SEC has the authority to file uh, uh, suits under Section 36B. Has it filed
4: any? It
6: hasn't filed any since, since 1980, Justice Ginsburg. I think that uh, the SEC in this context, it has, it has primarily directed its, its resources and energies into encouraging there to be better disclosure of fees, um, both the, the disclosure of information to the Board, um, disclosure to investors, better sh- um, education to shareholders so that they would be able to go. It, it
3: must be aware of the, uh, of the uh, divergence between the fees that investment advisors charge to uh, to these companies and what they charge to other clients, isn't the SEC aware of that?
6: Uh, it it is aware of that. And additive, yet, has brought additive. no suits
3: uh, of, against this industry uh,
6: since 1980. It hasn't used Section 36b. It has used um, less formal mechanisms yeah. in the context of examinations and disclosures
3: for just for disclosure. But uh, that suggests to me that the SEC may think that this is indeed a self-contained industry and that the comparison with the uh, with uh, uh, investment advice given to other entities is, is not a fair one.
2: Well, uh,
6: when the SEC helped draft the statute in the 1960s, it recognized that there was this systematic disparity between the amounts that mutual funds were being charged by investment advisors and the amounts that investment advisors were charging their unaffiliated clients. And in the 1969 memorandum that I referred to, which is reprinted in, in an appendix to the amicus brief by John Bogle um, in its entirety, the SEC mentioned that comparison as being something that may well be relevant in proving in an individual case that that particular investment advisor's fees are excessive and we think that the the test here of whether under all the circumstances which is what section 36b2 points the court towards of having to weigh have, having to weigh the board's approval of fees in uh, in light of all the circumstances that those circumstances include things like the evidence that petitioners have presented here that Mr. this
4: the all the circumstances that comes from the second circuit Gartenberg case?
6: Well, uh, it also comes, Justice Ginsburg, from the text of Section 36B2. uh, But in
4: in that case, at least there was a footnote that seemed to say you don't have to engage in a, a in a comparison with what institutional investors are paid.
6: Uh, The footnote that you're talking about did point out that in that case, the comparison that the plaintiffs were attempting to draw between the money market fund at issue and a pension fund wasn't a particularly relevant one because the services at issue were so different. And here, the parties appear to dispute how different the services are. Um, at at the Summary Judgment stage, the respondent stated that uh, it disputed how comparable the relevant services were. The District Court and the Court of Appeals considered that dispute immaterial because instead of comparing, instead of determining whether this investment advisor is selling the same services at half the price to its unaffiliated clients who actually can engage in arm's length marketing. Those courts simply said that if it, if it falls within the range that's charged by other mutual funds, that would be acceptable. And also, this,
0: the statute does not say, in considering the rates, you look at all the circumstances. You know, am I right? It says, in considering whether to defer to the Board, you look at all the circumstances.
6: It, it does say that you should give the board um, the such board, con- su- such consideration as is deemed appropriate under all the circumstances. That's correct. Right,
0: but isn't that different than saying, in looking at what the rates should be or whether they're excessive, you look at all the circumstances? Well, it may I, well be that you don't defer to the board, but that doesn't mean it's a free for all in deciding what you do look at.
6: Well, I, I think that it demonstrates that the court is is obligated to look to all the circumstances simply to determine whether the board's approval. Um, how much weight it should be given. And as this Court explained in Daily Income Fund, the entire point of Section 36 b is to provide an independent check that is independent of the fact that the directors approved the fees. We think that an appropriately informed Board that asks the right questions, that gets the right information, that fully considers the sort of factors that are discussed — Even if
5: they agree to pay double the
6: price? We think that that um, the the right process followed by the board would be probative, but something like double the price um, may may demonstrate that that it is an unfair bargain.
5: That's what are you advocating? That there's a standalone cause of action or a breach, of duty when there isn't full disclosure, even if the fee is within arms length normal. Begging I, the question of what's normal, but assuming that it's I, I, within an arm's length transaction range in the market.
6: If, if, if there was a lack of full disclosure, that might in the abstract be a breach of fiduciary duty even under the Seventh Circuit's test. Um, we think that if it didn't actually have an effect on the fees, then it wouldn't be actionable here because there would be no actual damages flowing from the lack of disclosure. But uh, even
3: the, if there is full disclosure, you, your, your, your position is in every case —
6: a court must decide whether the fee is reasonable or not. A court would need to decide whether the plaintiff has met its burden of proving that it falls outside the range of fees that arm's length bargaining would have, would have arrived at, and that's a cause of action that would what, be — How much
5: deviance and what's the scope of the range?
6: Well, I think that the, the term of art of fiduciary duty doesn't necessarily demonstrate — um, how much deviance away from the range there would be. I think that depending upon the segment of the market, the range might be more or less narrow. In segments of the market where services are more commoditized and standardized, perhaps with index funds, there might be a much narrower range of fees that are arrived at through arm's-length bargaining, and um, even and smaller disparities might be inappropriate there. How, Other is areas-
2: the, how is the standard you've just described different from a standard of reasonableness?
6: Well um I it I think that the chief way it differs from reasonableness, Justice Kennedy, is in saying that the court doesn't actually have to decide what the single most reasonable fee is. But as as the SEC explained in nineteen sixty nine, the shift from reasonableness to Well to I'd, pay, I'd be very
2: surprised if reasonableness always meant one. F- one figure can mean a range.
6: Well, I think reasonableness is, nece- is, is inevitably going to be part of the inherent fairness inquiry that this court referred to in Pepper against Lytton as being part of the fiduciary duty test as to whether the transaction is carries- a question going
3: back to Justice Kennedy's early question. Do you think the fiduciary status of the uh, uh, defendant in this case is different from the fiduciary status of, the pre- of a president
6: of a corporation? <laughs> I I think that it is different from the status of a president of a corporation that uh, the the term of our fiduciary, which Congress was invoking here, um, can mean different things in different circumstances. Pepper was a case that involved corporate directors. The chief difference here and what Congress was intending to counteract was the inherent structural impediment to arm's length bargaining between the investment advisor and the board of directors, and that's what makes that... High burden um, that was used in Pepper against Litton for controlling shareholders, the relevant analogy, we believe.
0: Thank you, counsel.
6: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice.
7: Mr. Donovan. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. The point that Mr. Gannon just made and that Mr. Frederick made before, that there was some structural impediment to negotiation between a mutual fund board and an advisor, is at the heart of this dispute. Because that is a judgment that Congress made. The Investment Company Act, in the first instance, delegates responsibility to the Board of Directors to approve fees. A fee may not be approved that does not have the consent of a majority of the independent trustees in the first instance. The independent check on fees that is erected by Section 36B
5: DR. Let's assume that all of the independent Board of director members vote for a particular fee. But the fee uh, is negotiated by an insider. And the insider is the one who does the evaluation, looks at them and says, I, I think this is really a great deal, guys, and they just vote for it. Is that a process that um, would guarantee an arm's-length transaction? In the, in the sense that Congress intended in this act,
7: it, it may not, and it may give rise to a cause of action. Because as I started, which the,
5: cause of action? Cause under of action. what?
7: It, it may give a cause of action under section 36B if the circumstances you described, Mr. Sotomayor, are have an impact
5: upon the fee. And the reason. So that, then, fair process is part of your definition of fiduciary duty. A court has to look at the nature of the process.
7: If there is an impact upon fee that is outside of the range of what could have been bargained. The reason uh, for that
5: Now, now you're adding what, what has been added, which is outside of the range, correct?
7: Yes. I mean, if I understand your question correctly, is will a process flaw alone justify a Section 36 b cause of action? My answer is no. Will a process flaw that affects a fee Justify a 36B action? Yes, it will. And All right, the reason but what is you're section what
5: you're arguing is if the process is fair, even if the fee is outside the range of an arm's length transaction, there is no cause of action.
7: No, I, I acknowledge that as well. There are two separate causes of action I can imagine under 36B. One, a process flaw that has a fee impact. And second, a fee that is so far outside of the bounds of what could have been bargained that it justifies independent review. The question under 36B is whether, having delegated responsibility in the first instance to a board, there's a reason to second-guess their judgment. And the independent check that Mr. Gannon referred to, that Section 36B erects, should not be uh, a de novo judicial review of the size of a fee for a couple of reasons. The first of which is Section 36B. That statute instructs courts to give such consideration as they consider due to the deliberations of the board. What did they see? What did they get? Did they negotiate? Um,
3: That's a wonderfully uh, clear command, isn't it? So, <laughs> but such there would, consideration as is, is appropriate. What is the language?
7: Read it. What is it? Uh, the language Sorry. is such consideration as the court considers due in the circumstances. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but there would be no reason for that instruction at all, Your Honor, if a court was to make its own judgment about what is fair and reasonable. It's, no,
3: it's meaningless. It tells the court to make its own judgment, such consideration as the court deems do. I mean, the, give it whatever, whatever consideration you, you feel like. It, it's utterly meaningless to me.
7: What I think Congress was doing was considering what the source of the common law had been before, The corporate context, Justice Kennedy, I think, was what inspired them. Uh, At corporate law, a decision would not be second-guessed by a court unless there was a reason to do so, unless the judgment of directors uh, and the presumption of regularity that attached to their decisions could, for some reason, be second-guessed. Was there a process flaw? Was it so far out of bounds?
0: Well, Uh, what do you — what is so far out of bounds? In other words, you say you can look at what the directors did if it's — as you said, two for out-of-bounds, but 10 percent off, 50 percent off? Mr. Chief, Double, as they say is the case here? I'm sorry? Double, as they say
7: is the case here? Well, as the plaintiff say is the case here. Yeah. I, I suggest there is no numerical baseline because, in fact, every kind of mutual fund and every stripe of mutual fund is different. You could well, you say
0: look to see if it's outside the bounds, and now you tell me there's no way to look it. it's outside the
7: bounds. Well, I, I think the first comparator would be other mutual funds of a similar stripe. Um, So, for example, you could imagine that a mutual fund with the same investment objective and style, that is, two times, might be inappropriate. You could also imagine a different circumstance where passively managed uh, funds, for example, a multiple of fees would be inappropriate. You could also, though, imagine a case where there is substantial risk taken, where the types of securities that are invested in are uh, unusual, where – Substantial differences could be justified. Well, is that the
3: test that the Court of, of Appeals here applied? Pardon me? Is that the test <coughs> that the Court of Appeals here applied, whose judgment you, you want us to affirm? The,
7: the Court of Appeals did not apply the test. Justice Judge Easterbrook.
3: So we should remand it for application of, of the test that you?
7: I, I don't wrote? think you have to. Uh, and the reason is because of what the district court did. And there I get to Justice Ginsburg, what you said. The The, the argument is made that services are um, the same. In fact, that is not the record. And if you look at Page 161 of the Joint Appendix and following, there is a list of services that the the, the investment advisor gave to the trustees in this case about all of the services that they did for their fee in this case.
3: Surely that's a disputed fact. It, Isn't it? it and and it, you want us to dispose, or you want this to be disposed of on summary judgment?
7: Well, in, in fact, the other it, side it, says the,
3: the services aren't that much different.
7: Uh, they are very different. Page one sixty one and following will tell you how. And the district court, at page 16 uh, a, excuse me, of the uh, district court's opinion, notices that the services were different. So on Not, the record, he well, wasn't talking about this particular case. It oh, was he was talking about in general. Was no, he, he was talking about this case, Justice Scalia. Yeah. Uh, Except
5: that they claim that you were receiving additional payment for the services or some, or at least a substantial number of the services that you claim are attributed by the difference. So they're saying if you compare apples to apples, um, you were charging twice the amount. If you compare apple to oranges, there are differences because the oranges were different, but you were getting paid for those oranges separately. I think that was their argument.
7: That is their argument, and it's not accurate. Well,
5: that's the issue of disputed facts. So let's go back. Are you disavowing the Seventh Circuit's approach? Because I read your brief, and it doesn't appear as if you're defending their market approach that says so long as the process was fair, um, any fee is okay. That's how I thought they had reached their conclusion.
7: I think what Judge Easterbrook said and where I disagree is if there is uh, deceit of directors uh, that would justify a cause of action under 36B. But in the absence of, in his words, pulling the wool over the eyes of the trustees,
5: uh, that's what I'm talking about. When I'm uh, using his words in terms and, and of I, their problem. And you're disavowing I, that.
7: I do not defend that because I can imagine, as your hypothetical asked earlier, uh, directors or trustees who are not paying attention. Uh, your
5: position is no different than the solicitor general's that there has to be some measure of fair process and some measure of a fair fee, at least within, in terms of it not being outside the range and arm's length transaction.
7: The Solicitor General gets it right when she describes Gartenberg as the standard. Is this a result that could have been fairly bargained at arm's length? Where we part company is with respect to two things. One is, uh, she says, and Mr. Gannon said today, that the most important consideration is a comparison to other kinds of fees. And that is required in the calculus in a district court. In fact, that would make mandatory what the SEC rules only make discretionary. Chief Justice, you asked earlier about uh, the SEC's rules in this area. And in fact, they compel disclosure of fees charged by advisors to their funds in their complex of similar uh, investment objective. They do not require disclosure of accounts within an advisor's uh, business operations that are institutional accounts. Now, to be sure, yep, if. That, that are what? That are uh, that the advisor's institutional accounts that the advisor serves. If. if but trust- the,
4: the, uh, the fund advisor here, I mean, the, the investment advisor did disclose that in the record did disclose the difference between what, char- what were charged mutual funds, what, what charged institutional investors, and then explained that the services were different, and that justified the difference. But they weren't trying to say, no, we don't have to come forward with this information.
7: That's precisely correct, Your Honor. In this case, the trustees did have the information. The advisor did disclose it. But the SEC does not require them to ask that question. All it requires them to do is, if they do ask the question, if they do study the material, they must disclose the weight they put onto it.
8: So suppose that you were appointed to a committee to set my pay. That might be helpful. I'd say, I'll pay you $50,000 a year to do it, as long as I'm satisfied with your results. Now, uh, would you, for example, not have in your mind, I'd like to know what he's paid by other people that don't have someone like me setting his pay? Wouldn't that be in your mind? It could be, surely. Yeah. Also, wouldn't that be a normal question to ask? And the trustees did ask it here. I don't know if they asked. I mean, I don't think we're reviewing the district court opinion. I think we're reversing. We're reviewing, uh, sorry. We're reviewing. (laughs) (laughs) I have laryngitis. I don't speak at it. (laughs) Uh, I think we're reviewing a, uh, a decision of a Court of Appeals setting a standard. And so wouldn't, when we set the standard, say we can't say if in every case you're not going to go out and ask him what he charges when he mows the neighbor's lawn. But uh, we would like to know what he charges uh, when he uh, 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 asks for money from people who do not have this kind of supervision. And uh, we would like, if it's a lot different, ask him Why?
7: Uh, Justice Breyer, okay. So,
8: what's the problem then? Is saying that in the opinion?
7: Uh, th- there is no problem with saying that if it is a rele- relevant consideration. Well, it's almost—it's
8: well, pretty unusual that it won't be, and I think you have certainly in the case in front of us a case where it would be relevant. You may have an answer to the question. There may be a perfectly good answer. So, let's listen to it.
7: The, the difference, Your Honor, is that the Solicitor General and the plaintiffs would make the question and the answer dispositive in every case i would acknowledge as the
8: answer dispositive well i don't see it should be dispositive maybe the services would be quite different precisely all right so but you have no objection and i'm not sure there's much of an issue It might i mean maybe there is some that's the only issue whether this should be dispositive always or whether it should be uh, a factor to take into account where relevant
7: It is a factor that I consider that is likely to be relevant. So you'd
8: have no objection to send it back and say, look, of course this is relevant, perhaps quite often relevant.
7: My objection to to sending it back is only that that analysis was done. But Uh,
4: But in the Seventh Circuit, Judge Easterbrook said mainly we have to look to see if there was full disclosure. And then there might be cases where it's so out of line And he said the comparison would be to other mutual funds. He excluded the comparison with uh, institutional investors. So to that extent was the Second Circuit wrong, saying this is not a relevant factor. What other mutual funds pay, investment advisors, may be a relevant factor.
7: I think the Seventh Circuit made that uh, comparison. Judge Easterbrook did say that the services of institutional accounts ordinarily are different from mutual fund accounts. I agree that in the first instance, the first comparator usually should be mutual funds. And regrettably, Judge Easterbrook did not cite to the record for the reasons uh, to identify those differences. But it is, in fact, in the record. And uh, there is no other record that suggests that they were the same. All we had below was the assertion that, on the one hand, an advisory contract for uh, an institutional account said advisory services, and on the other we had a mutual fund advisory contract that said advisory services.
0: When you say you should look at the range and how far it's off, do you mean that in the Gartenberg sense? In other words, if it's way out of line, then you assume or can at least look further at whether there was a fair process? Or do you mean it in the normal case and sort of setting the rates, you just look how far it, it's
7: off? I look at it in the Gartenberg sense, Your Honor. And, and the reason is, uh, because as I, from what I said, the first question is, is when do you ask courts to substitute their judgment?
0: It's, it's probably, you're not the person to, to ask, but do you understand the Solicitor General's position to be your understanding of the Gartenberg sense or
7: something else? I believe they uh, interpret it in the Gartenberg sense. Uh, I I think that the solicitor General's position and the respondents with respect to the standard that you ought to apply is Gartenberg.
8: What do we do about Gartenberg? That is to say, the the key sentence, you can read either way, the key sentence could mean, this depends on tone of voice, they must charge a fee that is not so disproportionately large that it bears no reasonable relationship to the services rendered, and could not have been could not have been the product of arm's length bargaining, or you could say, look, it's unlawful. Where it's so law, it doesn't where, where there's no reasonable relationship. And if there's no reasonable relationship, how could it have been the product of arm's length bargaining?
7: I agree. You can turn the words upside down. I think they turned it upside down.
8: In fact, if we turn them upside down,
7: well, I, I think they turned them upside down for a reason. Uh, and the reason is 36B1, which imposes the burden of proof upon a I well, was
8: saying a tone. Be a little careful here. Well, so it, we could say the substance is, I'm just trying this out, the substance is to look and see if it's reasonable. And if it's reasonable, it certainly is the product of bar length's bargaining. If it's not reasonable, how could it be? Got to get an answer to that. Okay? So uh, that way, we say the tone is be careful. You're a judge. You're not a rate setter. How's that?
7: Uh, I would accept the proposition that it is reasonable if it is outside of what it could have been uh, bargained at arm's length. I think they turned it upside down for the reason that the statute reverses the burden of proof. Uh, And I think that they also acknowledged that it is a process-oriented thing for judges to do. Because, after all, you're asking here a standard for judges to apply in a contested situation. That recognizes the responsibility of the board in the first instance. that's what thirty six d two is all about. Would, th- would, would you give us
3: the citations of the uh, parts of the record that you say render it unnecessary for us to remand uh, for the lower court to consider a comparison with non with, with institutional uh, charges?
7: Yes, Your Honor. I started pages 16A and 17A of the District Court's opinion. Where at page 16A at the bottom, the District Court said the services supplied are different. And We're at 16A of the joint appendix? Of, of, I'm sorry, of the petition. Of the petition. Correct. It's 16A of the petition, which is uh, Judge Kakoras' opinion. At the bottom of the page, you will see that he said the services Harris provided to institutional clients varied but in all events were more limited than those provided the funds. If you then go on to page 17, he goes through with respect to each of these three funds and chronicles the fees they paid and, by comparison, the fees charged to institutional accounts with similar investment objectives. The statement by the plaintiff petitioners here that the fee charged was a 2x multiple uh, – does not refer to that array of institutional accounts. It takes one in order to make the comparison uh, what it is. Uh, And then, Justice Scalia, I would then go to page 32A of the district court's opinion, where he describes what appeared to be disputed issues of fact. And what he said those disputed issues of fact were about were what the petitioners claim were Flaws in the negotiation process. In substance, what they would have done had they been negotiating rather than the trustees. It is not a dispute about the ultimate test was this fee so far out of bounds it could not have been reasonable? To be sure, throughout a record that is as large as this one, you could imagine the parties disputed lots of things. What you could not fairly dispute was whether these fees for these funds, using comparable funds and using institutional accounts, as Judge Kekoros did, um, were so far out of bounds they could not have been fairly bargained. And if, if that is the test, there's no need for remand. If, as I suggest, and as the Associate General suggests, Gartenberg is the appropriate standard, Gartenberg is so what the district court applied. This court has, to be sure, on occasion, and it is rare, both announced the test and applied it in the same circumstances. In circumstances where courts are looking for guidance on what the standard is and how to apply it, I suggest this is a case in which affirming what the district court did would um, be appropriate.
4: What about the petitioner's allegation that the investment advisor did not provide full and accurate information? and they mentioned particularly concerning economies of scale, profitability, and several other matters, that, the, that what everybody agrees is necessary, full disclosure, had not occurred. Is that a disputed issue, a fact that warrants further inquiry? Uh,
7: I, I don't think it is, Your Honor. And again, I would go back to what Judge Kakora said on 32A. Uh, there was absolutely suggestions in the record by the plaintiff, that they would have negotiated differently. But, for example, with respect to uh, ostensible misrepresentations on, um, uh, among other things, profitability and the rest, this was because the plaintiff's expert did an accounting and accounted for costs differently and said, had you accounted for costs and allocated them the way I did, it would have reached a negotiated result that was different. Well, that just isn't what happened. Um, That's why Judge Kokoris said – this goes to the integrity of the negotiation. Would the negotiation have been different? The plaintiffs say, "I would have done it differently," but that's all they said. Um, and it is not a misrepresentation to say, "I would have accounted for costs differently." Um, finally, I would. Uh, the, the other question you asked is where in the record, Justice Klee, I'm sorry. Um, it's at page 161 and following, where the background of uh, all the difference in fees and the difference in services is chronicled. You can tell from the pull-out charts at page 171 what fee is charged for each of these mutual funds and what fee is charged for institutional accounts. If you take the plaintiff's point of view and say that a comparison to institutional accounts is always required and may be dispositive and is always a fraction of what mutual fund charges, and that judges are in the first instance the ones to decide who is fair and reasonable or what is fair and reasonable as opposed to directors, I suggest you consign 8,000 mutual funds to a trial. On this record, these were funds that had best-in-class performance for fees that were at or below industry averages. That is not a record upon which a reasonable person could conclude that the advisor has overreached. That's at the heart A fiduciary duty. I see uh, uh, my time is about to expire. Thank you, Your Honour.
0: Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Frederick, you have three minutes remaining.
1: The district court here did not make findings. This was a summary judgment case, and in fact, the court didn't find that the disputes were non-existent. In fact, on page 38, the District Court said the disputes were non-material. And that's a very important distinction because the joint appendix that you have before you contains a lot of evidence in which it is disputed whether or not these were similar services. The Harris manager, on page 6, JA650, the portfolio holdings of the funds are very similar. On 512, the Harris fund manager testimony that when he buys a stock, He buys it for all mutual funds and independent accounts with the same investment objective. On 505 to 506, the Harris Research Director testimony that the managers of the mutual funds and independent accounts share equally all work done by the research department. And 513 to 514, that the Harris Fund manager says all of our analysts do research for all of our clients. There is disputed evidence here as to what constitutes similarity. Justice Sotomayor, these are comparing apples to apples because the record indicates that there are separate contracts for the additional fees that they charge to the mutual funds for the additional services provided. We are simply talking about comparisons of money management.
0: But if I Was your friend correct that these funds have better-than-average performance and lower-than-average fees?
1: um, In one small aspect of the damages period, that is correct. And after that was found they had lower-than-average performance and higher-than-average fees. Mr. Chief Justice, it's a damages period that encompasses several years. If I could go back to the point, though, about the fiduciary duty, what Judge Cardozo, when he was on the New York Court of Appeals, said a fiduciary represents the punctilio of honor. And that's contrasted with the morals of the marketplace operating at arm's length. It surely cannot be the case that where you're dealing with a fiduciary duty, which is a higher standard recognized in the law, that you can charge twice as much as what you're obtaining at arm's length for services that you are providing. The Gartenberg uh, court, Justice Breyer, in fact had the opposite language that you were adverting to, and that's at page 694 F second at 928, where the court said, quote, the test is essentially whether the fee schedule represents a charge within the range of what would have been negotiated at arm's length in the light of all the surrounding circumstances. I thought by
8: reversing that, picking out what the essence of it was, you'd get pretty close to what you're arguing for without getting into all this thing of whether it's just like a trustee or whether a lawyer should be a trustee or, you know, there are a lot of questions here that could float around depending on what language we use.
1: That's right. The Second Circuit, though, went on to flip it and say we had to prove a negative which is not ordinarily what a plaintiff has to prove in any law case, by showing it, it's so disproportionate it could not have been achieved at arm's length. And that's where we think the court have courts have gotten this wrong.
0: Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.